What can two new books tell us about Shakespeare and women? Alan Riding joins us from Paris to talk about Tina Packer's Women of Will and Chris Laortis's Shakespeare and the Countess. Women are actually more daring than we think of. They're not just sort of pushed around the whole time, but in fact, they dare stand up to male power. Essay collections are huge right now, but which one should you read? Michelle Orange will be here to talk about her shortlist look at five new collections. This idea of personal writing, um, diary keeping, for whom one writes, and layers of conversation, I think is something that struck me. My colleagues, Parl Sagal and John Williams, will talk about what's happening in the literary world. And Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Alan Riding joins us now from Paris. He is a former European cultural correspondent for The Times and co-author with Leslie Dunton Downer of The Essential Shakespeare Handbook. Hi, Alan. Hi there, Pamela. So um, that last credential, co-author of The Essential Shakespeare Handbook, uh, will come in handy discussing these two books. We're going to talk about Tina Packer's book, Women of Will, Following the Feminine in Shakespeare's Plays, and Chris Leartaris's book, Shakespeare and the Countess, The Battle That Gave Birth to the Globe. Let's start with the uh, Packer book. Who is Tina Packer? Tina is an English uh, actress who moved to the States about 40 years ago. And soon afterwards, in 1978, uh, was the co-founder of a theater company in Lenox, Massachusetts called Shakespeare and Company, an echo of the uh, bookshop here in Paris called Shakespeare and Company. And since then, she was acting and developing. But in recent years, she's developed a show called, like the book, Women of Will, in which she and another English actor, a man in this case, Nigel Gore, uh, they act out different scenes involving men and women in order to highlight the role of women in Shakespeare's plays. That's what she seems to be focusing on most of all. And she spent a great deal of time thinking about this relationship. And so fortunately, she's written about it in a very direct and frank and lively manner. And have you seen this play, Women of Will? No, I haven't. No, it hasn't got this far across the water yet. But I've seen bits of it uh, on the Internet, as we all do. And I get the sense of it just from reading her, because she's, she, she writes in, in a completely unacademic way. Most books about Shakespeare tend to come from academics of some sort or another and, and tend to be rather weighty and, and full of wisdom, so to speak. But she's totally direct, and she's, she's saying, I have lived this, I know, don't argue with me. <laughs> and do you argue with her? Well, you know, she has various premises. One is that Shakespeare began as a bit of a sort of ordinary macho fellow at that time and, and thought women were secondary figures in life, and gradually uh, changed his portrayal of women in, in, in from a sort of primitive to the sophisticated. For that, he credits love, wonderful love, and specifically the dark lady uh, of his sonnets, who she, again, while other people may argue and debate who that person was, she, um, Tina Packer has no doubt, and it's a woman called Emilia Bassano, who is one of those who is frequently thought to have been um, that person. And so the idea is that he, love, true love awakens inside uh, uh, Shakespeare, and this transforms his, his view. And so we have from, shall we say, the basic sort of treatment of women in the early history plays and Taming of the Shrew, of course, famously, to more sophisticated love items like Juliet and then the sophisticated love of Cleopatra. And shall we say the powerful mother in Volumnia, in, uh, in Coriolanus, who is um, one of the most extraordinary characters, I think, uh, 
that um, a female characters that Shakespeare came up with. Let's go back to the alleged dark lady. Who was Amelia Bassano? Well, she was um, of, of Italian descent, um, as you can tell. In fact, the name Bassano appears in different places, including Merchant of Venice. Uh, she was actually married, a married woman, and she, but had been a mistress to the Lord Chamberlain, um, who's always a very powerful figure. And uh, in fact, Shakespeare was belonged to the Lord Chamberlain's men for some years. After being a mistress to the Lord Chamberlain, actually having a child with him, she moved in those circles of, of art and aristocracy, really. And supposedly Shakespeare met her, came across her. It wouldn't have been a surprise because Shakespeare, in the early years, there was a plague epidemic in London, and the theatres closed soon after Shakespeare had begun. And that's when he wrote the two narrative poems, Venus and Adonis and The Rape of Lucretia. That's also when he wrote, probably wrote some of the early sonnets. That may well be. It seems to be from the dates, the time he would have met uh, Emilia Bassano and through um, Lord Southampton and his circle. And how well do you think she marshals evidence in favor of Bassano's candidacy for the Dark Lady? There's quite a lot of evidence to suggest it. And of course, she uses, she, as she does in, in, in other cases, trying to take bits from his life to demonstrate how it's echoed in the plays. And I suppose the fact that, you know, you have Bassano in Merchant of Venice and some characters like that. But some of the lines from the sonnets also appear in some of the plays. I think it's fairly convincing. I'm willing to go along with it. All right. I'm not sure whether I'd, I'm not sure whether I'd uh, take on Tina anyway. She uh, she chooses a, uh, an interesting way to organize her book um, into five acts. Yeah, well, that's, of course, all the Shakespearean plays are five acts, so she's being a little bit cute in that manner. Right. But does it does it work? Well, they don't always slot in, but there's a certain degree of, of calendar to it all. I mean, in the sense of you can more or less follow it. It fits into her premise that there's the growth of Shakespeare as a, a man who understands women more. The other premise, which also goes through here, and particularly he, she develops as he develops, which is that um, women are actually more daring than we think of. They're not just sort of pushed around the whole time, but in fact, they dare stand up to male power, and they're willing to spell out their disapproval of male abuses. So there's a certain sort of touch of feminism there. I mean, even in something like Henry VI, the three Henry VI, you have uh, the French Queen Margaret, the wife of Henry VI, and of course, Henry VI is portrayed, and in fact, in life was a mixture of being a very weak man and certainly not um, a warrior, and his wife was a warrior, and so she comes over very strongly, and of course, she dares stand up to the rise of the Yorks, so she's a pretty powerful woman, and um, on, you know, on, in the comedies, you'll have women like Beatrice in Much Ado, which was also a pretty fearsome character, yes. and then the wonderful uh, Cleopatra. But then she, in order to fit things in properly, she also says she takes the, the tragic figures of Ophelia in, in Hamlet and Desdemona and Othello and Cordelia and King Lear, who all die rather miserably, you know. Um, but she says they die because they actually dared to challenge male power. So they were, in a sense, martyrs to, to the cause. Did you find yourself buying into this thesis of hers? Is it convincing? Well, I found it... Uh, I found it generally a, a very entertaining book. I can't say I agreed with every line because, you know, the whole issue of the women of will, wills women, shall we say, you know, you have to go back to the fact that there were no women on stage unless you include Gwyneth Paltrow right. Shakespeare in love. We don't even know whether Shakespeare thought there soon would be women on stage. I mean, there were already in Italy at that time. You know, you are thinking about, well, it's fine with you if you have a, a young boy who can play Juliet or or Miranda, or one of the teenage heroines, shall we say. 
But, you know, men playing Cleopatra and Volumnia, I mean, you close your eyes and you begin to think of panto, pantomime dames in England, you know, um, camping around. I I don't know. But what about on the page? Do the characters really go from being more conventional um, female types to being more revolutionary characters, the women? Well, I think certainly when you get to, to Cleopatra and people like that and, and Volumnia, I mean, you do have strong women like Poro Lear's daughters, um, Regan and, and Goneril were you know, pretty ferocious women. You, you do get a sense of, of him enjoying strong women. And it's interesting that Tina Packer actually highlights Volumnia, um, who was Coriolanus's mother, was a very dominant figure, and so much so that she was always keen to have him go off to battle and return with lots of scars and wounds and evidence of his courage and, and his worthiness. And she wanted him to become consul. He didn't want to accept the humility he considered to be having to humble himself before the tribunes, and so he refused to do that, and he was thrown out. Um, and went into exile, joined his enemy to come back and punish Rome, and they were about to take Rome, and then Mama appears again and sort of says, oh, no, please don't do that, please don't do that. And and she actually more or less pressures him, all the power that she has in her very, very strong character, into not going ahead and, and reconquering Rome. And in fact, in doing so, she condemns him to death, because when he goes back um, with his new allies, they kill him. When you think, again, we're talking about women on stage, you know, you know, women take great roles. I mean, actually, Sarah, Sarah Bernhardt uh, played Hamlet famously, you know, more than a century ago. Characters like Fiona Shaw, who's a wonderful Irish actress. Uh, I saw her doing Richard II a few years ago. And today in the, theater, in the Globe Theatre in London, the New Globe, um, you quite often have all women productions and all women playing Richard III, for example. So, and then throw in the cross-dressing that goes on in Shakespeare. So, I mean, there you have in someone like in Twelfth Night, you have someone like Viola, who's played by a young man pretending to be a young woman, who in fact in the play is pretending to be a young man. So uh, go figure. You mentioned the new globe. Let's just uh, talk a little bit about the old globe and this second book, uh, which is called Shakespeare and the Countess, The Battle That Gave Birth to the Globe by Chris Laertaris. What's this book about? Who is the countess of the title? The book is an interesting book in the sense that he is pulled out of obscurity. This really rather extraordinary woman, Elizabeth Russell, who came from not a very upper class family, but her father educated her and her sisters in the most extraordinary way. In fact, her father was um, one of the tutors to the royal family, moved in those circles only as a, as a tutor, as a teacher, but he moved in the right circles. And the girls were all quite extraordinary. They married. I mean, one of the sisters married uh, William Cecil, uh, who was you know, probably the most powerful courtier in, in London, in the Elizabethan court, and who then was mother to Robert Cecil, who then also... And another sister married... Nicholas Bacon, who was the Lord Keeper of the Great Seal, and she was the mother of the philosopher Francis Bacon. So you can see where she was moving. But Elizabeth didn't do so well. Her first husband was um, ambassador to Paris uh, for a while, and then he died very young, and she married again. Her misfortune was, you know, she thought, well, this is a good marriage because she was marrying a man who was going to become the next Earl of Bedford, a very powerful figure. Unfortunately, he died, her husband died before dad, and so uh, she couldn't actually claim to be the Dowager Countess, but Elizabeth did exactly what she liked, and she just went around calling herself the Dowager Countess. Anyway, somewhere along the line, she lived in Blackfriars, um, one of her places uh, in, in London, and she lived there, and at a certain point, the Burbages, 
who basically owned one of the first theatres in London, which is called The Theatre, and they wanted to have an indoor place. And so they actually bought some space, some buildings, and they began to adapt some buildings almost next door to uh, Dowager Countess, our fighting Dowager Countess. And she wouldn't have any of that. And she organized an enormous amount of campaign because, for a start, theater was not what the Puritans liked. She wouldn't, wasn't going to have these people making a dreadful din and, and bringing the wrong sort of people, all sorts of tradesmen and actors. prostitutes. And, and actors and prostitutes, I think, in her mind, were just about the same sort of thing. Right. So, in the end, the Burbages went outside what was, in fact, the city and, therefore, the area that could be controlled to Southwark, just across the the, the river was there. In fact, you were brothels and bear baiting and everything that could, you know, that was considered Elizabethan entertainment for the masses. And that's, of course, where the globe was built. And so it was not until um, 1609, which was the year of, of Lady Russell's death, that they were able to come back and have an indoor theater at Blackfriars. And it was important to have an indoor theater because, you know, English weather is not um, terrific. <laughs> and uh, the globe was open air as it is today. And so they were able to have, really have a all-year-round performances thanks to um, the Black Prize Theatre. So the book kind of sets up the idea that this woman sort of nearly destroyed William Shakespeare's career um, by preventing the uh, this theatre um, at Blackfriars. But um, the book is primarily not about Shakespeare, but about her and the, this period. Yes, I think he actually, I, I, I sort of wonder whether the publishers forced him into having this title. And I can just see some editor requiring him to finish each chapter saying, and this could well affect the rest of Shakespeare's career, right. or could this mean the threat to Shakespeare? So you have these, what in old journalism we used to call lousy links. But when it gets to the story of actually Blackfriars, it, you know, it stands up on its own. But what doesn't stand up is the notion that uh, Lady Russell could have completely sunk Shakespeare's career, at least not with me. Alan, uh, you are certainly an authority on the subject, being the author or co-author of a book called The Essential Shakespeare Handbook. Looking again at these two books, Shakespeare and the Countess, The Battle That Gave Birth to the Globe, and Women of Will, Following the Feminine in Shakespeare's Plays, what did you learn? What was the most interesting new thing you learned about Shakespeare in these books? It certainly made me think a great deal about the different roles. And Tina Packer's book, um, Women of Will, did make me look again at these roles. And for anyone who goes to see Shakespeare frequently, I think this is a terrific book because, you know, it's not a definitive anything because there are so many books about Shakespeare and different aspects of it. But, but this one does make you look at certain aspects of it in a fresh, in a fresh eye. And the other book on the Countess, well, it, it just, she is a fascinating character. And what that did tell me was just how powerful the Puritans were in the Elizabethan era. The books, again, are Women of Will, Following the Feminine in Shakespeare's Plays by Tina Packer, and Shakespeare and the Countess by Chris Leotaris. Alan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Pamela. Alan Riding reviews both books this week in the book review. Riding is a former European cultural correspondent for The Times and also co-author with Leslie Dunton Downer of The Essential Shakespeare Handbook. My colleagues, Paul Siegel and John Williams, are here to talk about what's happening in the literary world. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. All right, Paul and John show. What's going on this week? Well, the big news is um, probably that the Man International Prize was given to Laszlo Krasna Orkai, who is a Hungarian novelist, um, a really bleak 
funny nihilistic writer who is you know his, his work has been making it into the into the states very slowly his first book was published in 1985 was published uh, in Hungary in 1985 and came out here I think in 2012 but he's long been championed by writers like Susan Sontag and um, so this is a this is a big deal this is sort of going to bring him you know a much wider audience for Man Booker Prize neophytes, can you explain the difference between the Man Booker Prize and the International Man Booker Prize? The International Booker Prize is a more recent prize. It's given once every two years, and it's given not for an individual book, but for a body of work. And the body of work has to be uh, either in English or translated into English and available in that language. And is the idea that it goes to non-British Empire writers, or it can be either? Yeah, it, it's gone to a variety of people. It went to Chinua Achebe, Alice Munro won, Philip Roth won, Lydia Davis. Our others. colleague Jennifer Salai actually reviewed one of um, his novels in 2012 for the London Review of Books, and I thought it was funny because she quoted Susan Sontag's praise of him at some length, and uh, Sontag wrote that his work is both an anatomy of desolation, desolation at its most appalling, and a stirring manual of resistance to desolation through inwardness. <laughs> and Jen uh, warned people uh, not to think that he took his own fiction as seriously as Sontag does and that it has a sly humor and that you should read it for that as well. That's a good line. Yeah. We're not allowed to talk about other book reviews here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and now segueing naturally to Barbara Streisand, what's going on with of her? Of course, a future Man International Prize winner, I'm sure. Um, Barbara is if I can call her that, is publishing a memoir. In we 2000- call her Babs. We call her Babs. Babs is publishing um, a memoir in 2017 that was just announced. Uh, the publisher Viking announced that it had acquired the rights to it. And you know there have been many, many books about Babs. And she actually did write a book a few years ago about her sense of design and style. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is her life story. And allegedly, it will be uh, soup to nuts. So from her childhood, throughout her entire career, and all of her different mediums. She's one of the few entertainers who have, who have won the Tony, Emmy, Grammy, and Oscar. The Tony was a special award for Star of the Decade in so 1970. So it doesn't Well, you know, the Wikipedia page says that it, there's an asterisk. You know, there are a few people who won actual Tonys. She has time. She can be in a few more shows. Is she writing it herself, or do we know if she has a co-author? I don't know that yet. But she evidently is less than thrilled with all of the books that have been written about her and claims that this is going to be the truth. And... One final note, again, not the most natural of segues, but um, <laughs> we want to talk about a wonderful writer mm-hmm. uh, who recently died. Mm-hmm. So William Zinser died last week at the age of 92. It's, it's an interesting thing to think about. Like, There's this big ecosystem of MFAs, right? You know, Writers teach at MFAs, they come out of MFAs, but are there legendary teachers um, in the same way that there are legendary teachers in dance or in music? And Zinser actually was one of them. And he wrote this amazing manual called On Writing Well, which sold some 1.5 million copies and sort of like Strunk and White, like Orwell's writings about language, sort of advocated for clarity, vigorous language, staying away from jargon. So aside from like the beauty of this book, which was very influential, you know, Christopher Buckley said he wrote with Zinsser on his shoulder, sort of saying, you know, get rid of this clutter, clean the sentence up. He also just seems to have been an incredibly generous um, and lovely sort of longtime teacher. Do you have a favorite quote or uh, a piece of advice from him? I do, I do, and I'm going to paraphrase it. But he says, I think he said this at a at a graduation, and it was quoted in our in our Times obituary that don't be too seduced by security. It seems like the greatest thing, but it usually it isn't. So didn't he say something about a period that the best thing one can say about a period is that it should come much sooner, or something? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds he was like all a for very cervic. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's yeah. end on that note. Carl Sagal, John Williams, thanks so much. Thanks, Thank Paul. you. 
Michelle Orange is here. She is the author of the essay collection, This is Running for Your Life. And this week, she reviews five essay collections in the shortlist. Hi, Michelle. Hi. All right. We've got five books here. I'm just going to run through the titles quickly so people know what we're talking about. And then we'll we'll talk about them a little bit one by one and as a group. Um, so first up, Ongoingness, The End of a Diary by Sarah Manguzo. Moral Agents, Eight 20th Century American Writers by Edward Mendelssohn. Essays After 80 by Donald Hall. Discontent and Its Civilizations, Dispatches from Lahore, New York, and London by Mohsen Hamid. And Letter to a Future Lover, Marginalia, Errata, Secrets, Inscriptions, and Other Ephemera Found in Libraries by Ander Monson. Okay, five books. Let me ask you off the top, did you have a favorite among the five? I think my favorite would be between the, the Hall and the Ander Monson book. Okay, let's talk a little bit about those two books then first. Okay. Um, why don't we start off with Donald Hall's Essays After 80. Donald Hall, uh, he is a, a poet, a poet laureate. This collection, I think, came out of his feeling that in his advanced age, he is over 80, as the title suggests. Uh, poetry was no longer coming as naturally to him. It wasn't flowing as well. But what he was able to write were these essays. And he uh, was easily um, churning out these essays, remembrances um, of his life. I think he'd written essays throughout his life and did some journalistic work. But this was a, a, a sort of concentrated outlet for him. And it produced um, some really remarkable uh, remembrances of his life. So is it is it largely autobiographical? Is he writing about aging? What are his subjects? It is. Uh, it, it is largely about aging and aging in the context of memory, the, the things that are now returning to him at the end of his life um, and sort of sorting through memories and, and um, deriving from them, I guess, a sense of meaning about his life. I think my favorite bit from your review, uh, a quote from the book, is uh, in referring to the aging face of Mick Jagger. Uh, he calls it uh, some, like something retrieved from a bog. I had to put that in there. I just I couldn't stop laughing about it. it, it yeah, is the collection full of those little gems? It is. He's a very he's a very witty sort of humorous man, but it's a it's a a deadpan sort of humor that I really enjoyed. Um, the other one you said uh, was a favorite was Letter to a Future Lover, Marginalia, Errata, Secrets, Inscriptions, and Other Ephemera Found in Libraries by Ander Monson. Tell us about this book. So Ander Monson uh, is a, also a poet and essayist, um, and he's published several books. The last one, I believe, was called Vanishing Point, um, which was a memoir, sort of a twist on memoir. He's a writer who uh, enjoys pushing and exploring the essay form, and, and in this it's a collection, but as he states in one of the early pieces, it's it's something that he collected, not against his will, but sort of against his instincts, because this is a project that originated with him placing essays in books that he'd found in libraries, books that contained marginalia, writings in the margins, or, or, or something strange about them that triggered or inspired him. And so he left these essays inside of the books and re reshelved them. And um, he notes that they, they've been collected before, but in a sort of haphazard, I think maybe like a box type of form. <laughs> and so he's collected them now in a bound volume, um, which he organizes alphabetically just uh, because he had to organize them somehow. But they're just striking sort of uh, romantic odes to books and to libraries and to the conversations that I think literature at its best sparks in people. You know, it's this idea of him responding to the response of these anonymous people who've been one of them. The title, uh, Letter to a Future Lover, that piece 
responds to um, a love letter that he found in, in a book that he pulled off of a, a library shelf. I think there needs to be a collection of books about library pranks specifically. <laughs> I think my favorite was uh, Joe Orton, I think, and I think he got punished pretty uh, seriously for defacing library books. Um, the playwright in the 60s, he took um, like these British horticulture books and cut out the centerpiece of roses and sort of pasted in monkey faces and things like that. Um, <laughs> wow. Somebody's got to bring all of this together. Um, I wonder, too, if there's a, just this nostalgia and this uh, around the printed book. It does come into play, I think, for Monson in this book. Um, and I think that's where the romance of it comes in, because a lot of these pieces are based in this desire uh, the, or um, urge to return to the printed experience, the, the physical experience of a book. And, and again, that, that idea of the layers that can be built into it as if a book that exists over time and that's been read and handled by many people, it's a, it's a lovely sort of theme that he draws out. All right. Three other collections in this short list we should talk about. Let's start with Sarah Manguso's book, uh, Ongoingness, The End of a Diary. It's a book about a diary. <laughs> the diary is her own, um, and uh, it, it's a, a slight and sort of enigmatic kind of meditation on uh, her own impulse to keep this diary in a compulsive fashion. As she notes, there's, uh, I think it's 800,000 words or pages. I can't remember which, but a lot of words. She's been keeping it for many, many years since she was a teenager. And words. Words. Thank you. Pages would have really been <laughs> that, something. I mean, yeah, who knows? I don't know. The way, the way she, she certainly gets into the the uh, expanse that it has taken on in her uh, life. Um, and so it, it's a book about trying to figure out why, what purpose this diary keeping has served in her life. And what would you say? Did she figure that out? What is the purpose of the diary? Well, uh, she she states it sort of explicitly in, in a couple different points. And, and it's this idea of, of a fear of being lost in time. It's a compulsion to try and um, capture and contain her own life and her own experience as it passes. And I, it feels to me a bit like um, a metaphor, in a sense, for, for an artist's struggle to, to capture and make sense or make meaning out of their own life before it passes. Perhaps about control. <laughs> well, definitely, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but none of the diary bits, none of those 800,000 words are in this actual she book. She made the decision to not... Uh, to, to not uh, add any of the actual diary into the book. Where did she get this title, Ongoingness? Ongoingness, apparently, um, I, I read in an interview with, with Sarah Manguso, is uh, something she clipped from um, a George W.S. Tro quote about his own life, where, where he observed of his own life that the ongoingness is, frankly, um, turning into a, a bit of a problem. Or I'm, I'm paraphrasing I think the, the quote. The ongoingness of it is, frankly, a real problem. <laughs> um, Tro was a, a critic. Yes, a critic who I admire very much. And, and there's something about that, I think, again, maybe resonated with her, with her this stress about life passing and, and not knowing how to manage or deal with it in, in a way that had meaning. Another great literary critic, Edward Mendelssohn, uh, is the author of the next book, Moral Agents, Eight 20th Century American Writers. Who are the eight writers? Let's start there. The subjects are Lionel Trilling, Dwight MacDonald, Alfred Kazan, William Maxwell, Saul Bellow, Norman Mailer, W.H. Auden, and Frank O'Hara. And why does he pick these eight subjects? What unites them? Well, it seems that with this project, he he wanted to explore um, largely through examining their, the journals and the diaries of his subjects. What he proposes is the double life that a, a lot of intellectuals and writers in the 20th century had to live. 
And so that becomes a main thesis. And in two of the essays that I like the best about Trilling and Mailer, he really delves into this idea uh, sort of related to the Manguso of why do we write diaries? Um, to whom are we speaking when we write a diary? Uh, and he excavates that material for some, for some really uh, interesting theses. Now, you said in your review that this collection serves as a kind of companion to an earlier book that Mendelssohn wrote called The Things That Matter. What was that book about? Well, that book dealt only with female authors, as it turned out, um, George Eliot, I think, among them, um, and Virginia Woolf. And I think he mentions in the introduction that these two, you know, there's obviously a, a gender divide between these two books, one dis- discussing this idea of moral agency in literature, and the other, what he wound up discussing, I think, is the idea of individuality um, in literature, the importance, I think, for the writer, the female writers that he discusses of carving out a sense of individuality in their identities as writers and in their subjects. The final um, essay collection is by someone who we more uh, closely associate with the novel, um, Mohsin Hamid. Um, his collection is Discontent and Its Civilizations, Dispatches from Lahore, New York, and London. What's this collection? This is a collection of pieces, I believe, from the last 15 years of Hamid's career as a writer. As you note, he he is mostly known as a, a novelist, but he has also published fairly steadily um, a series of, of essays that deal with his experience and also try to address the uh, geopolitical issues that he's sort of keenly positioned to address. Those issues, of course, were also addressed in his novels, The Reluctant Fundamentalist and How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. Is all of the material here previously published or is any of it new? I believe it is all previously published. And what would you say is the strength of of this particular book? What I enjoyed uh, the most about the pieces in the collection, the ones that I found uh, to be the strongest, were the ones where Hamid writes personally about his experience as someone who was born in Pakistan, has lived in the United States, and also lived in the UK, and and subsequently, uh, or in the last 10 years or so, moved back to Pakistan, started a family there. His description of that experience in the more personal essays was striking to me. Okay, five books, five very different essay collections. Um, On the surface, it seems that um, several of them at least deal with sort of the act of writing and um, what it means to be a writer and the process of writing. Was there anything else that that united them? This idea of personal writing, um, diary keeping, for whom one writes, um, and and layers of conversation, I think, is something that that struck me. And and I think I wrote about them in in the order in which I moved through them. And I was struck by the sort of coherence that that jumped out at me in that regard. Any collections in the last couple of years that have particularly impressed you? Yeah, uh, Charles D'Ambrosio's Loitering um, and Leslie Jameson's The Empathy Exams, I think, are the two that come to mind. And both of those came out last year and uh, were reviewed in our pages. All right, Michelle Orange, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Michelle Orange is the author of the essay collection, This is Running for Your Life. And this week, she reviews a marathon uh, shortlist here of five collections of essays. Greg Coles is here with Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What do we have to talk about this week? Four new books on the fiction side of things and four new books on the nonfiction side of things. Where shall we start? Uh, Let's start with fiction. 
Down at number 13, Jeffrey Deaver continues his Catherine Dance series with a book called Solitude Creek. That's the fourth book in the series, new at number 13. Uh, Then a debut at number 12, a former editor at Cosmo and Self magazine named Jessica Knoll has a kind of a suspense thriller called Luckiest Girl Alive that is garnering some comparisons to Gone Girl or Girl on the Train. This one's Luckiest Girl Alive. All all these mean girl books. Never women. (laughs) Luckiest Girl Alive uh, is about a sex columnist at a women's magazine who is trying to make it big in New York society. She's kind of scheming for a trophy husband. She starts out really sort of despicable and manipulative. Uh, But as the book goes on, you find out what her background is and how she was affected uh, at her prep school by an incident there. That book is new at number 12 on the list. Then at number eight, Lincoln Child continues his Jeremy Logan series with a book called The Forgotten Room. Uh, Lincoln Child, you may know, not related to Lee Child. Uh, Lincoln is American. He's a former editor at St. Martin's Press, Uh, And he's well known for writing techno thrillers with Douglas Preston, but this is one of his uh, solo books. Then at number five, uh, the last new title on the list this week, Craig Johnson continues his uh, Walt Longmire series that's about a sheriff in uh, Wyoming. It's actually the the premise for a series on the A&E network, also called Longmire. This is a book called Dry Bones. It's the 11th book in that series, new at number five. I'm just behind on all of these series. Okay. (laughs) Nonfiction. Uh, Nonfiction, uh, down at number 16, the former deputy director of the CIA, Michael Morell, has written a book with Bill Harlow called The Great War of Our Time, a title that sort of harks back to Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, uh, the great battle of our time. The Great War of Our Time, in Michael Morell's assessment, is, of course, the war against terrorism. And he's looking back uh, at his recent career and some of the America's uh, biggest troubles um, and and successes in um, fighting terrorism. He looks, of course, at 9-11. He looks at Benghazi. He looks at uh, the raid that killed bin Laden. I'm going to try hard not to dwell on the fact that he's comparing all of this to Lord of the Rings. (laughs) I'm not sure uh, he's doing that intentionally in the title. It's just you, Greg. (laughs) That's just me. (laughs) At number 14... Uh, The historian Joseph J. Ellis has a new book called The Quartet. Um, The quartet in question is George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. After the Revolutionary War had ended, um, America, the original 13 colonies, were really just like a loose federation of independent states. And he looks at how these four politically, diplomatically connived basically to turn America into one nation instead of uh, independent states. All right. The one non-Father's Day entry to the list up next. (laughs) At number nine, Sally Mann, famous as a photographer. She first really made a name for herself back in the 80s, taking nude pictures of her children and and a lot of very kind of just intimate um, family photos um, and and portraits uh, of other people quite controversial in her time, although looking back on them now, there's something kind of sweet and innocent about these pictures. Nothing compared to what goes up on Facebook. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, She's got a memoir looking back at that time and and at what photography has become since then called Hold Still. That's new at number nine. Uh, And then finally, uh, back to Father's Day, although moms might be interested in this one too, the long Thanks for your inclusion. <laughs> <laughs> the, the longtime NBC anchor Tom Brokaw has written a memoir um, of his life with cancer. Uh, he was 
73 years old when he found out that he had uh, the blood cancer, multiple myeloma. He's now 75, and he's written a a memoir called A Lucky Life Interrupted. That's uh, new at number four. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.